if you think your child's struggling with something, check it out. Because the sooner you get onto it, the younger that they are, the more open they are to experiencing it as part of who they are without all the social stigma and things getting to them as an older person. And just the impact it has on your self-esteem. You know, years and years of feeling bad about yourself is not great for anybody. And if you can prevent that for your children by finding out what that struggle is and helping them with strategies, that's the biggest gift you can give them. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode 190 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. Look, in the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one, not one, that isn't truly brilliant at something. So for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Lara Connolly. Lara, is it Lara or Laura? It's Lara, but yeah, so not Laura, Lara. Yeah. Okay. So let me keep going then. Lara Connolly is a teacher's assistant working with a range of neurodiverse students, including students with autism, ADHD, dyspraxia, and dyslexia. At a primary school, the kids are ages 5 to 12, in Wellington, New Zealand. In her previous life, Lara was a lawyer specializing in family law with a particular interest in supporting families who experienced family violence and or mental health challenges. Lara attended the University of Canterbury where she studied law and sociology. She had her first child at 23 and finished her degrees part-time while sole parenting, finally graduating when her daughter was three years old. Lara lives with her husband, youngest daughter, their cat Scooby, and their Bernese mountain dog Frida. Her current hyperfocus is researching her family history and learning Irish and Te Rio Maori. Okay, how do you pronounce that? 
Te reo Māori. Te reo Māori. Fantastic. Okay. Te reo Māori, the language of the indigenous Māori people of New, New Zealand. In her free time, she loves going to live music, gardening, knitting, vintage patterns, and walking her dog on the beach. Lara, did I get all that right? You sure did. Great job on the pronunciation of Te Reo Māori. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Te Reo Māori. So w- what is Te Reo Māori? It's, uh, it's the Māori language. So it's the language of the Māori people who are our Indigenous people here in New Zealand. They were here first and we're colonisers, I guess. And so part of, well, definitely. And so it's part of curriculum at school. It's really important that we learn it. And it's, we have a treaty here in New Zealand to be working with Māori people. And over the last 40 years, there's been more of a resurgence of the language here in New Zealand and more, of, more people are learning it. So are you fluent? No, no, and no, no regard, no. But basics to be able to count and greet people. Part of Te Reo Māori, uh, an important part of it is being able to introduce yourself in Te Reo Māori and the Māori people, you know, are linked to the land and so they will introduce you telling you their river and their their tribe and their mountain. But for us as colonisers, our ancestral lands are somewhere else. So that kind of links into the ancestral stuff that I've been doing finding where my ancestral lands are so I can do a proper introduction in, in Te Reo Māori. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. So, Lara, you know I always want to start with the ADHD diagnosis story. So can we do that? What were the circumstances? What happened? Well, my son was diagnosed with OCD when he was 10. My youngest daughter got very, very sick with uh, bacterial pneumonia and ended up in ICU. She was only eight at the time. And that that event, that trauma, um, triggered my son's OCD. And I knew I was a Pollyanna from that moment because I thought once we got his diagnosis, well, my daughter's illness, which was terrible, and we were in hospital for 11 days, triggered that OCD at an age where we could really help him with CBT and all those kinds of things. So we were in the system, as it were, with a psychologist from that time. But then when he uh, got into his teenage years, he was very, very clever, very outgoing, uh, sporty kind of kid. Uh, he started struggling in the year where assessment became important. Here in New Zealand, we assess children at high school from 15 through to 18, they have three years of assessment um, that go towards their final qualification. And so it's quite uh, full on in terms of the academic work they need to do. And he'd been able to wing it until then. Uh, but then it, things started to, to get harder, as we know now with ADHD brains, and, and he became depressed. And it was a real shock to us, and he just became numb and we thought, what's going on? We'd seen him starting to struggle and had start, had been working with his psychologist throughout that time saying, look, we think something else is going on for him. And when he became depressed, we um, linked in with a psychiatrist and she said, uh, I think uh, that this is ADHD. And she started talking about the um, symptoms and uh, how it worked and, and the genetics of it. And as she was talking through that, my husband looked at me and I looked at him and everything kind of clicked into place. And 
I said, look, I think I need to be assessed as well. And it was no surprise to me when it came up that I was definitely ADHD combined type. So can I ask you, so your son was about 15 at this time? Yes, yeah. So what was going on was the academics, it was just getting harder and harder and it exceeded his ability to cope. Yes. I mean, he was still academically capable to do it. It was the organization, the getting it down. Yeah. So combining it with the OCD, he's got a good good um, handful of perfectionism in there, just like me as well. You know, that whole, it had to be right. So he had this combination where the ADHD would mean that he would find it really difficult to get started. And then as he was doing the work, it would be really difficult with the OCD and uh, his perfectionism in terms of getting it right to stop. So I would be the one to motivate him to start something. And my husband, who's an ex-journalist, would be the one to get, say, okay, stop, that's good now. You can stop now. <laughs> but that was just becoming far too hard. And yeah, it led to a episode of depression, which we had fabulous support we just linked in with the psychiatrist because we'd seen that he was really starting to struggle in terms of his mood, and we just linked that all in. So we were able to get really good, clear support for him through that period. Um, we didn't have to wait. Um, we've got a public health system here, if, uh, but we had gone private. If we'd had to wait for the public system, I'm sure his depression would have deepened. So we were very mm. um, fortunate to access those resources um, quickly and that resolved and the ADHD medication that he takes just clicked for him immediately and in a way once again the Pollyanna in me I don't ever want anyone to feel the way that he did during that period but because he had that experience he's very compliant with his medication more compliant than I think your average teenager would be because he doesn't want to feel like that again. Mm. Well, and it works, right? I think when yeah. kids aren't compliant, it's because it's not working and it's making them feel worse. That's right. I mean, he does have some side effects in terms of he had nausea for a while, but that's settled down and it does impact on how he eats. But he sees in the main, the, the benefit of it is huge. So was he diagnosed with inattentive ADHD or combined type? No, well? combined type, combined type. He's a very, he's a musician. He's a very outgoing, wow. social, physical, physically active kind of guy, as well as love, you know, can go too much in his head. Yeah. So yeah, combined type. <laughs> so, so I'm curious with the OCD and ADHD and how that affected school. So was the problem pre purely starting or were there other things? Is he pretty darn organized and on top of things and never late? No, but, no, no, oh. no, no, no. Yeah. He's okay. completely ADHD in terms of the organizational stuff. Yeah. The mm -hmm. executive function stuff was there. And that's where there was this terrible bind for him. You know, he really had this perfectionist side um, once he got going on a project and did fabulous work. He did really well at school um, once he got started, but but then, then he would hyper-focus and deep dive <laughs> into yeah. the project. And um, then it would be really hard for him to be happy with it in the end. That was the OCD side of it. It was never good enough when, of course, it, it was over good enough. You know, it was, it was great. But he would find that really hard. So he'd find it hard to start with getting all the organizational skills together and then hard to sign off at the end. Yeah. Although that's 
pretty ADHD too, right? Once we get sucked into that rabbit hole. So I'm curious, when you were sitting there with a psychologist or psychiatrist, I can't remember what you said, and they were talking about ADHD and the symptoms, what were they saying that made you think, oh my gosh, this is me? Uh, It was really when she was describing how you don't have to have hyperactivity obviously on the outside that what was going on for my son uh, and primarily was a hyperactive brain and talking about how you can be having so many different thoughts at the same time and I just thought oh my god that's me and another huge part of it for me is emotional regulation both of us really struggle with that from the really positive exuberant kind of we're big huggers we're dinner time at our family is everybody talking over each other lots of politics lots of fun conversations but also on the other side of it if we get really upset you know that can be quite distressing for both of us so yeah the the emotional regulation really stood out for me because both of us I one one of the things, I, I was a big reader, always from a child right the way through. I love reading and I, you know, I would escape to those worlds, but I also would kind of absorb it, not be able to remember the exact words or the chapters or whatever, but I'd remember the essence of it. And I remember when struggling with Shay's behavior as a, as a younger child, right, trying to help him with, with that, I read um, The Explosive Child by um, Professor Green. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking at the time, and when I was in the psychologist's office, it just clicked for me. I read the book and I thought, that's great. But what about the explosive parent? <laughs> you know? And I thought, that's me. <laughs> you know, we, wow. where's the book about the explosive parent? And, you know, for me now, that made so much sense that here I was, this emotionally dysregulated parent in my, in my worst moments. And I knew exactly what I should be doing, but I'd just not be able to cope. I'd get overwhelmed and and lost in the moment. Okay, so tell me what that would look like when you're talking about the explosive parent. Was it overreacting to little things or these were big things and you just kind of overdid it a little bit? Well, it was it was more um, the buildup of things. With OCD, you can, you know, really pursue something. So say when Shay was a little boy, he'd really want to go to the dairy for lollies after school, right? And and if you were average child, you might be able to say, well, this day is our day that we do this. You know, we'd have Friday is the day. But this young child would ask, as soon as I picked him up from school and about 10 times, and I'd be trying really patiently to be my best positive parents and, <laughs> and say, you know, say things like Friday is our day to go and get that's a special treat day, you know, this kind of stuff. And he would just pursue, pursue, pursue me and in my head. And I'd just get overwhelmed and I'd end up yelling at him, you know, just saying, stop it now. You know, I can't cope. This is not okay. And yeah, it, it was, and I would, perfectionism in terms of parenting was something I was really hard on myself. And I'd be so like, oh, I shouldn't have yelled at my child. This is terrible. Because I worked family law and saw mm. a lot of, cases of family violence you know yeah I had an over extended kind of view of and was really sensitive to doing that kind of thing I didn't want any of that in our in our life you know because I saw the the impact it had on other families at, at the other extreme but because that impacted on my view of the world I was really hard on myself whenever I had one of those moments yeah 
I I could under I can understand why, and probably even if you weren't you know involved in that, you still. I mean, we beat ourselves up because yeah. you know there are times when we just lose it, and you're thinking, oh my yeah. gosh, this is a small child. I am the adult. Yes, yeah, and I'd I'd think all of that rationally, but uh, it would just my emotional regulation would just yeah. I couldn't do it, and so I, I was really really hard on myself. And by the time Shay was diagnosed, I'd actually left the law already because my daughter had struggled with dyspraxia. She needed speech therapy help when she was preschool because my son could understand her and I could understand her when I really listened, but her language wasn't that obvious. And 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 now I know that's a, a classic part of dyspraxia. So we had her in speech therapy and I knew she was struggling and Shay, Shay had already shown a lot of anxiety. So having worked with kids in family law and had a lot of psychologists that I'd worked with with families, you know, I was looking at my kids and their neurodiversity and their, their needs and I was already reassessing, should I be doing this full-on job at the same time as supporting these kids? And mm-hmm. I think that that was also part of the ADHD. I was. I was starting to feel overwhelmed because not only was I um, working in this quite intense area of law, I was, you know, doing all this extra stuff with the kids, the psychologist appointments, the occupational therapist eventually for my daughter with dyspraxia, which was brilliant, the speech therapist. And so trying to juggle all of that and, and parenting and my work just became too much and I got physically unwell I developed a um, inflammatory illness and there were points where I would just work all week get the kids through the school week and then collapse on the couch in the weekends and, and not know why my body would just it was like a chronic fatigue kind of situation and I, my husband would just have to take up the slack and now I know that it was because of my ADHD you know I was working so much harder to keep it all together and that that was really impacting on my body and um, my body was telling me to to slow down. So can I ask you, Lara, I have often wondered how, you know, and I'm a lawyer by background as well, and I really, I, I went to law school because I wanted to be a criminal, you know, lawyer and, or I wanted to practice criminal law. And then as I got closer and closer, I didn't have any kids then. But I thought, Mm. I cannot do this, you know, with, you know, Mm. violence against children and women. And Mm. and do you think that was part of it? That just seems like such a hard area of law and to not take it home and then have Mm. kids, right? So you realize Mm. the magnitude even more once you have kids. I'm Mm. curious. Do you think that might have been part of it, that it was the kind of law you practiced? Absolutely. But... um... I, it was the only, I look back with my ADHD now and because empathy is a huge part of mm-hmm. who I am and, and part of my, you know, my ADHD picture. And I thrived on helping people. I was the first person in my family to go to university and it wasn't really something that was held in high esteem so much in my family. You know, practical stuff was uh, held in high esteem. And so, for me, when I came across feminism, I really wanted to do something practical as well, not just the theory. I needed to prove that, look, this is not just theory in the, in the ivory towers. This is stuff that's 
supports people. And so I, I volunteered in a woman's refuge while I was studying. And that really, that experience really led me to family law was the only one that I um, felt that I was truly attracted to because I wanted to uh, help families and, and the kids. And I was able to be professional. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, but I and have that professional wall because I was able to convince myself the best way for me to deal with these feelings of empathy for these these families and what they're going through is to be professional and do this job for them. But the effort that it took to build that professional wall was so draining because of how empathic I was. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh, it makes total sense. I I honestly and and I can al- I can already tell just by the way you speak that you have more empathy even than I do. And I couldn't, I mean, I just, I couldn't handle it. And I knew that. And I think because I am less empathetic than you, I knew knew to build that wall wall before I even got there because I knew I couldn't handle it. Versus you, who has so much empathy, was like, forget me. I've got to go in there and make that difference. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was a a selfish thing, though, for me as well, because I got so much yeah. You know how you've talked about when you've had, I've listened to you for two years, Tracy, and it's been so fabulous, so many um, things I can relate to. And one of them was when you were talking about different jobs that people with ADHD have and talking about the emergency department doctor. Uh, well, this the law that I did was the closest you can get to that yeah. because we would be, uh, our law firm was one of the firms that worked for uh, the refuges and they would be referred to us and we would help families get safe and get safe quickly with protection orders and things like that and get kids safe as well. And and then eventually as lawyer for child, I was working in cases along those lines. And it was that, that hit that I would get from, yes, I helped someone today or having to get that those papers into court so that we could get this, this family safe. I, I see that now from listening to your podcast, that, that that was the only law that I could possibly do. <laughs> it's the dopamine, baby. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay, so before we go into what it is that you're doing now, because I understand you have left the law to do something, that it sounds like it gives you the same amount of dopamine rush. Is that true? It does. It does in a different way. Well, in, in a much, so, I mean, what happened really in working in the law is that I, once I left, I looked back at those 14 years and realized apart from the time that I took off to have my children, and I took off a year each time I had my children, I was working on adrenaline the whole time, just mm. um, pumped full of it. And that was, that was what made my body give up in the end. Um, right. And so I had to step back from that um, for my own health. And so now the work that I do, it does give me that hit of helping people, and, and but in a much healthier way. Wow. Okay. So before we go into that, what I'd love to know is what was Lara like as a child? Sure. Well, I was really exuberant and uh, I was a singing, dancing, acting machine in terms of putting on plays and hurting my two younger brothers to be actors in them. <laughs> me too. And, yeah, and I school reports were classic. I can remember, and this was even before my diagnosis. Like when we were looking at school report stuff for my diagnosis, I just laughed. You know, it it was um, enthusiastic contributor, <laughs> and, and you know, and um, just saying nicely that I talk too much, and the and the, the, the they would say things like, 
uh, Lara is an enthusiastic contributor, needs to give other members of the class an opportunity to make contributions as well. <laughs> <laughs> Things why? like that. Why? Yeah, why? I don't know why. <laughs> but I, I also um, needed that time. I was a bit of a lone wolf. You know, I always felt different. I loved people and I loved connecting with people and making friends. I'm, and even now, I'm still the kind of person who, if you're in the lift, I'll, I'll strike up a conversation with people that kind of thing. But I also spent a lot of time in my room reading and I hyper-focused on projects. And the funniest one was when I was 10, that was peak Princess Diana time. And I did this huge project. I had the haircut and the and the, and the clothes and, and did this project on Princess Diana where my, my father was so tolerant, they bought me an old typewriter and I sat in my room and typed all these captions and he even let me use the photocopier at his work and screeds and screeds of photos out of books and magazines. And I made this huge project and I must have spent months on it. And so I just look back at that kind of hyper-focus as well. So I, I was really social, but I also had a lot of alone time. So what else about my childhood? Yes, I was too much really, I think, for my family. I, in looking at during lockdown, my child, my daughter and I did this project where we asked my parents who were isolating by themselves um, questions about their childhood and, and things like that. And from those questions, I really drew a picture that and understood that both of my parents were really quite quiet children. They were really quite a lot quieter than me. So it really helped me understand how I was too much. You know, that, that was the sense that I got, you know, that I was quite a lot to handle. <laughs> Were you an only child? No, I had two brothers. So but I was the only I was the only girl and I was the firstborn grandchild on my mum's side. So I was a bit of a princess. So you were the oldest? Yes. Okay. You know, you mentioned Princess Diana and um I saw during during COVID, I saw one of the documentaries, probably several of the documentaries on her. Yeah. And I I just really believe that poor woman was in a ten of ADHD. I mean, complete with, you know, she's a total empath. She loved people. Yeah. yeah. Movement was so important to her. You know, she struggled with this eating disorder. I just I wonder yeah. if there's any research that's been done on that, but it just made me think of that. Yeah. Well that'd be interesting. But yeah, I was and I guess it was the empathic side of her that I was really attracted to. Um, mm -hmm. As well as the glamour, being 10. <laughs> yeah. Until you really learned, oh, my gosh. With that yeah, that's right. I'm a complete <laughs> Republican now, but not, not your kind of Republican, as in we should be a republic. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Yeah. So um, what about school? Was school pretty easy as far school as grades? Was, and well, uh, it was – I – did well, but it was because I, I thought I was um, not as smart as my friends because I had to do more work than them. I was mm -hmm. I, I guess it gets summed up by a couple of things. In the, our last year of high school, I got the Diligence Award. Oh. <laughs> you know, classic. Eh? And um, because I, I did work really hard to do it. But I loved learning, and I just was so frustrated that – I wasn't as clever as my friends because I had I couldn't remember everything as well as they did, but I yeah you know, I really loved learning and so that just motivated me a lot. But and then the other thing was 
at high school, I had two nicknames, and they were Mum and Dizzy. And I think that was that sums up how the ADHD affected me. So I saw myself as quite an anxious person for a lot of my life. Uh, but as soon as I started taking ADHD medication, that anxiety disappeared. But at that stage of my life, I was the cautious one. Uh, I had a long-term boyfriend at high school, so I was a bit more grown up than some of my other friends. So they saw me as the mum of the group. I'd always bring up the things that we had to be careful about. <laughs> but also they called me. They also called me dizzy because I was. They'd say it was ironic because I was really clever, but no good at any of the practical parts of life. So that kind of sums up high school. But then I, I thrived with music and acting. You know, I did lots of drama and music at high school. That uh, I think singing is a great in terms of my emotional re- regulation. That really helped me through those years of doing a lot of singing. So Lara, you sound like the quintessential ADHD young person. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I I was a risk taker, but in a very cautious way, if that makes sense. <laughs> I'd leap off in certain areas where I felt safe, you know, but I was anxious about where that would go, but then I'd impulsively do things that young people do, you know. So can I ask you, were you treated for anxiety before you were diagnosed with ADHD, like as you when you were younger, or no? Not, a, not a, as an adult, I went to um, therapy uh, for my anxiety. And mm. it's interesting, and that's one of the things that I'd really recommend with people, is if they suspect ADHD, to find a therapist uh, who specializes in, in ADHD, if that's what you suspect. But at, at the time, I didn't. And, and my therapist, who's wonderful and, and worked through a lot of issues with her, and I went back to her once I had this diagnosis, I now see a different therapist who does specialise in ADHD. She said she wouldn't have thought of it for me because, of, you know, it's that whole thing of, of it not really being thought of as something for women or for adults for such a long mm. time. I hope she's thinking of it now for her, you know, new patients. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, she was um, really interested and open to that. Uh, but now I have a therapist who's fabulous who specializes in that and an EMDR, which has, has really been a breakthrough for me in terms of the emotional regulation and the RSD. Okay, that, hold on there. I want to talk yep. about EMDR, but I want to wrap up with, I just want to make sure that I understand mm. you. So mm-hmm. the minute you were diagnosed with ADHD and you started on ADHD medication, the anxiety was gone. Is that what yeah. you said? Yes. Wow. Yeah. The, the best example of that was I wasn't sure you know, when I was trialing it, you know, I had a little bit of, is this working or isn't this? But uh, the real, the really amazing thing that happened to me that was a light bulb moment was we went on a family holiday to Fiji, which is sounds glamorous, but it's pretty close to New Zealand and lots of families go. And <laughs> so, so it's our Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so we, we were there and my husband's a real risk taker kind of guy. He's a snowboarder who at the age of 50 still does tricks and mountain biking <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And so he wanted us as a family to swim with the giant manta ray. And in the place where we were staying, there's this amazing channel where they, they gather and so basically it's got a huge current and a boat drops you at one end and you swim in the current with the manta ray and come out at the other end. Now, before being on medication, 
I would not have got into that water because it, it would have overwhelmed me in terms of just the sensations of the deepness, the current, the temperature. But when he suggested it, there was no way I was going to let him do take the children out there without me. I had to be there for that. And what was amazing was both my son and I had started our ADHD medication and his anxiety had leveled out as well. And we were actually leading the pack. We were the first people to dive into the water. And here I was in this current, in this beautiful ocean with this huge, majestic black butterfly creature in front of us. And I just had this moment where I just realized this medication's working <laughs> because oh. I'm really enjoying this. And here I am with my son doing something I never would have done otherwise. I have goosebumps. I, I can see it. I can literally yeah. visualize the picture of you and your yeah. son out there. Okay. So <laughs> it's so interesting that you bring up EMDR. And again, not to get back to the royal family, but the first time <laughs> I saw someone going through EMDR was Prince Harry on that, whatever the special was that he did with Oprah about mental right. health. I and, didn't see. I mean, I thought I saw that, but I missed the bit about EMDR. Yeah, well, it they actually filmed him going through EMDR because I guess what had happened, I can't really remember, but my my recollection is that you know he was still he was still grieving and had trauma over the death of his mother. Right? He was so he was so young, and yeah. so they were they were working through that. And so I'm curious. So tell us what an EMDR is, and then I'd I'd like to know what your experience with it was. It sounds like um, it really worked for you. Well, I'm not an expert in EMDR, but it's it's um, eye movement. I can't even remember what it stands for, but it, it was the rapid eye movement. Um, it's eye movement, you... desensitization, and reprocessing. It's a mouthful. Right. Yeah, it is. It is. And um, I first was introduced to it by my psychiatrist who suggested it for me once um, I was diagnosed with PTSD on top of my ADHD because when I started my ADHD medication, uh, like you've mentioned on many an episode, that manages the ADHD. And then the other things that your um, comorbidities can kind of come to the fore. And I mm -hmm. became extremely irritated by things. And my son was 17, so he was being a 17-year-old and, and I was not coping with um normal 17-year-old behaviours. And I said to um, the psychiatrist, look, I think I'm not sure about this medication. This is what's going on. And and so what I could see was happening was that he was doing his normal 17-year-old moving away from me as a 17-year-old stuff. And I was still hanging on there. And, <laughs> and you know, the, the, the rejection sensitivity disorder was really... Mm -hmm magnifying that, you know, making me feel even more rejected, you know, uh, than the the normal mums being rejected by their teenagers because they're, they're growing up, you know. And so yeah. that was all too much. And she recognised that there was PTSD there and recommended a book to me by Francine Shapiro, and it was Getting Past Your Past. And she suggested EMDR, and I read the book, and it just really resonated with me. And I said, yes, I think um, that's something that I could do and I and I found this therapist. I had to wait six months to get to see her and uh, and we started the work and it's really been the final layer of assistance with my RSD to process those trigger points, those memories that 
all those kind of times where I felt rejected to process them and, and help let go of that pain and so that I'm not so triggered by the next smaller thing that happens now. So it, it's helped with my emotional regulation so much. Does that explain it? So when you say um, when you say PTSD, are you talking about PTSD around your ADHD? Yes, and and my psychiatrist explained it that it was related to uh, that empathy that we were talking about. Yeah, because I had a lot of experiences in my workplace. I've had like like a lot of practitioners in that area. You know, I've had clients that have passed away as a result of being kill- killed by their perpetrators, terrible things happen to children that I've been working with that's outside of my control. I've had death threats, you know, all those kinds of things that impact in a part of that world of practicing in that area. And I I used to beat myself up a lot about, well, why can't I cope with this like these other practitioners who seem to be able to just move past it? It really got inside me. And on top of that, there is the the impact of that buildup of the little traumas of the rejection that happened all along the way that that I felt in an amplified mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Well, and I think people don't, they don't realize, right, that, you know, mm. you think, oh, it's ADHD, that's not trauma, because we're thinking of big T trauma, like, you know, violence. Yeah. But and I really struggled with the diagnosis. Cuts. Yeah. I'm sorry? I really struggled with the diagnosis of PTSD, because I saw people ah. with real... Yes. Capital yes. T trauma. You worked with them. I've worked exactly. with them all the time, and I thought I I don't have PTSD. These people have experienced true ta- trauma, and so for me, it took a long time to accept that the little build up of those little moments that because I felt them so deeply, whether that was what was intended or not, had really caused me to feel so so hurt. Absolutely, and so what's traumatic to one person who is not an empath, right? Yeah. That's completely different than what's traumatic to someone who is an empath who who feels things so deeply. Yeah. And when I there was a moment when I knew that I had to give up the law was when I was working with a particularly traumatized dad who had come from a uh Eastern European background and had experienced the uh all the trauma of living in a country under under the cold war kind of environment and he didn't trust authority and um, there was a lot of trauma there for him and it was a really difficult case in building a relationship with him all of that kind of stuff but at the same time I was starting to physically become unwell and I could actually physically feel that barrier of my Mm -hmm. professional barrier coming down and, and his trauma kind of really seeping into me and I thought right okay I can't do this anymore. This is I can't keep up that professional wall anymore. I've, I've got to let go of this. I can't do it. I can't look after my family and do this. Yeah. So EMDR, so Yeah. what do you feel it did? Well, first, kind of describe what happens when you're going through EMDR. Well, you identify some memories that you have that are particularly stick out, and you talk through those memories with your therapist about which ones you want to work on processing. You, you like you can have some particular moments that really you you can identify yourself as it really hurt you still or that you need to process. And I, I've done a lot of talk therapy and I feel felt like I was talked 
out, <laughs> which seems yeah. impossible for somebody like me who keeps talking whatever the situation. But it, it didn't it didn't really complete the process for me. And so uh, you identify those moments and then the therapist guides you through thinking about that and you watch either on screen, like a, there's a, a program where you watch a dot if you were doing it by Zoom, like as we were through the lockout, uh, the lockdowns here, or um, just watch the finger of the um, therapist while, as it moves back and forth while you're thinking about those memories. And there's this whole process where that helps your brain file away and process that memory in a different way so that it's not traumatizing anymore. So you're, you're actually using your eyes to move from side to side while you are yes. talking about yes. this trauma. Yeah. yeah. And then you're also, you're also tapping, right? Or did she have you do that on your shoulders? Well, uh, she was, it wasn't, she was moving her finger and it, she, she get, I don't, you don't talk so much as you decide on the memory and then you think about it. And then uh, after a little while, she'll pause and say, so what did that bring up? And you might say what you were thinking about as that process was going on. And she goes, okay, she'll pick out a bit of what you were thinking about and go think about that point particularly now and process that. So then you do the eye movement again. And then she'll pause and say, all right, what was coming up now? So it's like you're gradually processing that thought in a way that that it, it, it kind of unsticks the memory. Does that make sense? I mean, it does to me because, mm. you know, I'm somewhat familiar with this. So it takes the mm. charge out of it, right? So you can then yes. think about the memory and it, it doesn't upset you. It, it removes that, you know, um, those emotional ups and downs. That's right. And so the reason I knew it was working was things that would trigger an emotional response for me that trigger was gone and I could step back from it in a way and step away from a situation in a way that I previously would have reacted. So your teenager so, would be a teenager and you'd be like, oh, he's just being a teenager. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. how long did that take? Well, it's still a work in progress. Like all of this is still a work in progress. Um, I, I feel like I've really processed the biggest hurdles but there's always stuff to work on so but it, it's been probably about it took probably six months of doing it on a monthly basis to really process most of the most of the um, big memories for me yeah and it's just made such a huge difference to being able to live the life that I want to live to model the person who I want to be uh, which I always knew was how, how I wanted to live but just this reactive part of me I felt let me down but now I know I mean and I still react sometimes but just no way at the same level. That is just so interesting how six sessions literally that's what it was can make yeah. such a change in how you I guess your emotional regulation how you're able to regulate you know your nervous system. Yeah. Well, she did say that I was like a sponge, that EMDR was perfect for me. <laughs> like I I did process things quite quickly once I got into the rhythm of it. It, it, it is, it, yeah. And, and I love that, it, that there's science behind it. So many things, because I've done over the years trying to manage my emotions and figure out what was wrong with me, you know, all those kinds of things. I've tried lots of different things. And this is just to have the science behind this 
is great. You know, there's the psychiatrist and the psychologist back it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, obviously talk therapy serves its purpose, but over time, I've spoken to so many people who literally for decades have gone to a therapist and all they've done is talk. And at what point are you just digging those grooves in deeper and deeper and you just start to believe that this is who you are, you know, versus yeah. something that this that's more somatic, it's, it's forcing you to bring your body into the equation. And yeah, and that just makes so much sense to me because it was my body that was um, yeah, just regulating messages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it really does resonate, and I really encourage people to give it a go, uh, particularly if uh, RSD is, is a, and emotional regulation is a big part of your symptoms. Yeah. I can remember when doing the talk therapy with my son as well when we would uh, I can remember saying to when I saying to his therapist who was working with him for OCD I said you know when my son wasn't there obviously look I feel like there's something broken in me I'm not because we were doing a lot of exposure therapy for him to help him mm -hmm. with his OCD fears yeah. and that can be really tough because they don't want to be exposed to the thing that they're you know and so you know it takes a lot of patience and and things like that but there would be points as I said before where I'd get overwhelmed and and I'd say look there's something there's something going on with me and um and I was right you know it, it, uh, but she would say to me it's just hard it's hard parenting someone um you're doing you're doing all right this is just tough you know but I'm glad we were able to get the diagnosis the diagnoses that we did has your son ever tried um EMDR not yet, but he he's uh, got a great therapist now. He, he his previous therapist was great for his childhood, but now he's seeing um, one appropriate for his age and really working working with him and uh, enjoying that process. So that's that's one of the great things, and that I think about, which is so important, is early diagnosis, and that's one of the things. Yes. That I I think about the way I saw myself for 47 years, you know, as too much. And um, like as a lawyer, you know, I would have to do cross-examination and I'd have friends who were at the same level as me, been practicing for 10 years, who could just have a couple of bullet points and wing it with their cross-examination in court. For me, I'd have to prepare the script, mm -hmm. you know, that I'd have. I would be able to wing points once I was in there, but I had to have the script done and I'd do double the preparation of them. Oh, I've forgotten where I was going now. See, I went off on a tangent. But it was, yeah, what was I saying? I, had asked, I, I had asked about um, your son and if he had tried EMDR and you had, you said that he's working with a really good therapist right now. All right, yeah. I've forgotten what I was talking about. but it, <laughs> Par for the course. Classic. You're on the right yeah. podcast. Yeah, but it was just that, oh, I can't remember. I, I wonder, though, in what you're saying about having to over-prepare all the time yeah. and your colleagues who've done it, you know, for a shorter period of time, just being able to go in and wing it. Do you think yeah. part of that, though, is just the anxiety around knowing that, you know, your brain doesn't have the best working memory? And yes. I, because I can relate to what you're saying. So what ends up happening is I over-prepare, I over-prepare. But then yeah. sometimes I can go in 
And I'm not prepared at all. And I'm totally just winging it. And I am so on. But it's like I can access that part of my brain in that moment. But you give me even a little bit of anxiety, you know, or whatever. The situation gives me even a little bit of anxiety. The only way that I can quell that, you know, um, prefrontal cortex, excuse me, the only way I can access the prefrontal cortex is for me to not be anxious. And so I overprepare to, um, to combat the anxiety. Absolutely. And that's what I was doing because here I had these people's lives in my hands and I was, you know, I was thinking I've got to do my best job for these people, you know, and the only way that I um, could quell that anxiety that would result from that was making sure that I prepared, you know, as much as I possibly could because I did have that sensation, that moment where I knew the law. I knew what I was doing. I'd done this for 14 years, but yes. then it was in my brain. It was this, uh, I couldn't access things as quickly as other people could. I had to see it, remind myself with bullet points or go back over the case law to remind myself of that. I couldn't just pull it out of the hat. It's like with music. Um, I, I love music and I love so many different kinds of music and you know the, the true musos know the the tracks the names of the albums and all that kind of stuff me no I just know I like a I like a song you know and I can't I apart from my my main favorite people you know I, I can't name that album that year I just oh my feel, gosh Lara. You know, <laughs> I can't I can't even I cannot even memorize one sentence from a chorus yeah, if it was before right. I turned 12, I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> sometimes I remember it. Sometimes I don't. But you, yeah. yet when I hear something yeah. from when I was younger, it just mm. triggers all these memories. And I just love it so much. But then I can't yeah. remember what, what the yeah. hell was it. Yeah. And, and, and the ADHD explains how much I love live music as well, because I love <laughs> going to live music and just that sensory seeking, um, yep. feeling the music. You know, I just really, it's one of my things that... It, I've maintained throughout my life. Yeah, it, it, it's just such a physical experience for me, you know, so I love it. And, and, and it makes sense to me now why, yeah. Okay, so you left law and uh, you are now working with neurodivergent kids. How did that come about? When I first left the law, I wasn't working for a while. I was just uh, managing the kids' appointments and getting well. I just had to physically do things like yoga although even even with yoga I couldn't do yoga without listening to my music because otherwise my brain would just be all over the place so I had mm. to do yoga with music going to to still my brain went to acupuncture a lot just to to heal but while I was doing that I uh, would volunteer at my daughter's school I'd go on all the school trips if they needed extra parent help I would be there and so uh, as my daughter got older and went to high school. Uh, it was actually in the year that she'd left the school. And I thought, oh, that, and I had a connection with that primary school from the time that my, my oldest daughter, who's now 27, uh, started school there. And so I'd had a child at that school for um, maybe 18 years, you know, depending on which child it was. So I had a strong connection with the teachers and the community. And there were a couple of autistic children there. They were twins and they needed a... Uh, teacher aid for and one of my friends uh, was a teacher there and she asked me uh, if I would do it and 
I hadn't been working in paid work for probably four years by that stage. And as much as focusing on the kids and my health was an important thing, there was a real negative side to it. And so that gave me plenty of time to ruminate and think about, you know, I really did think I was a failure for burning out and not being able to keep doing the job that I had loved. Um, I knew this was the best thing for me to step back from it, but I was being pretty hard on myself uh, for not being able to do everything. And I, I came across a quote from one of your country's wonderful people, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she said, you know, I had it all, just not all at the same time. And that's what I feel like is the way my life needed to work. I needed to simplify things. And so um, when this job came up, I just thought, yes, um, I'd been working. My daughter had been having occupational therapy for her dyspraxia for uh, five years, fortnightly, and the occupational therapist would come to our home. And so that's a lot of occupational therapy. And we, I learned a lot about dyspraxia and things to help that I also had absorbed so much about um, OCD and and was soon to add ADHD knowledge to my bow as well. And so I uh, took the job. I, I thought, okay, I, I'm in this world of neurodiverse kids. I'd love to be a teacher aide there and support those those kids. And I, I learned so much because autism is such a, a spectrum and every child is different. And so I, I learn more from from them than I'm sure they get from me. It's it's wonderful getting to know each child and what their needs are and what their strengths are and helping support them at school has been one of my um, biggest joys, really. Why? I love uh, helping them access what's in their head and being able to put it out there. This this one boy that I worked with um, was non-verbal, this, uh, the first boy I worked with, and but he loved the iPad. And we made these amazing, um, on Book Creator, by the end of the year, he was making these amazing cartoon books, telling stories, sharing them with his peers. And I just loved helping him connect with his peers and building that connection with him helping him feel comfortable to come out of his world. Does that make sense? It's a real joy and a real privilege. Yeah. Yeah, showing him who he really is and what his gifts yeah. are. Yeah, but also helping him feel comfortable to connect with others because it's such a hard thing to do when you're autistic, you know, and he wanted to connect with others. It was just hard to – it was just helping facilitate that, really, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So so is it you're helping him understand himself and how he can learn how to do the things he wants to do? Yeah, like supporting him to do to use some strategies and mm -hmm. helping him see which works for him, you know, which yeah. ones work for him. Yeah. And so using that iPad and creating those stories, which he loved doing, he, he loved just making them. That was fun. But then he saw he was able to share his pride and and, and what he made with his with his peers and they would connect with that and, and and he he connected with them in a way that he hadn't before and so you know opening possibilities for him that that was that was awesome mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, and that's the ADHD brain at work, right? It's the creativity. Yeah. It's the problem yeah. solver. And then I've worked with um, children who've experienced trauma as well. That was, that felt like full circle from a, a child who um, had experienced trauma through family violence and had very ADHD-like um, symptoms, but they were able to really be in the classroom without being hypervigilant and, and mm. reactive and all that kind of stuff. And just seeing, uh, building that relationship with that child and seeing her then relax and be able to build more relationships within the classroom and actually start to try and learn because she was just too hypervigilant and too scared to yeah. uh, in, in her brain to learn and just having building that relationship and being that kind of touchstone for them helps them be able to learn and and build relationships outside of you it's great for the ADHD brain and that there's so much variety every child is different you've got and within the classroom, uh, you have these lessons that they're doing. Okay, we're doing maths. What's this child's particular needs? How can I assist them with this moment? And then, all right, 40 minutes later, we're on to writing. And okay, um, so you've not only got the variety within the classroom, but the variety in the children. So it's perfect for my ADHD brain. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So what is the best advice that you could give to the parents of an ADHD child? They are, the more open they are to uh, experiencing it as part of who they are without all the social stigma and things getting to them if, as an older person and just the impact it has on your self-esteem. You know, years and years of feeling bad about yourself is not great for anybody and if you can prevent that for your children by finding out what if there is a struggle that they're going through what that struggle is and helping them with strategies that's the big biggest gift you can give them and you know yeah I just think don't be afraid of labels because every child I see who's um, been diagnosed including my own children I've seen a weight lift off their shoulders because they understand now, why can't I do what my peers are doing? Why do I find this hard? And if they can understand that it's part of the way their brain is wired, it's, it's not a defect of their personality or whatever else they might be thinking, you're giving them the gift of self-esteem. And, and that's what we need. You know, I just worry about uh, we have a really high teenage suicide rate here in New Zealand. And, Sorry. you know, it's it's being able to understand who you are and have compassion for yourself is just uh, such a gift that you can give your children if they uh, are diagnosed early. And it's a win-win. I always tell parents it's a win-win. Either you find out that your child has a challenge that needs some strategies and you can work with it, or you find out that they're developmentally rocking along where they should be. It's a win. Either way, you've got nothing to lose. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned um, the sooner the better. And I have seen a lot of experts uh, lately talking about, not a lot, I'll say a few experts uh, talking lately about maybe it's better, you know, if you're considering medication. So many parents, I know I was one of them and I was like, I don't want to give my son medication. You know, he's only 12. Yeah. You know, let's just see, can we wait this out? Well, the deal yeah. though, is if medication really works. What they're mm. saying now is give it as young as possible because of neuroplasticity. So yeah. their brains can change and they can learn 
the skills that they need to learn in order to be able to, you know, go to school, do their homework, all of that. And then in a lot of instances, or I should say some instances, they no longer need the medication because they've learned what they need to do. That's right. And for me, I regret, um, that's a a big regret for me is, um, you know, as I say, my son was extra compliant with his medication because he experienced that depression, but I wish he'd never had to go through that. I wish mm-hmm. um, that we'd known earlier and that we'd been able to medicate him earlier. But I, I like you, would have been hesitant, but I think I would have come to it earlier if we'd known sooner, you know. And because it is, it is I kind of hesitate to use the word because it's such a strong word, but it is torturous. You know, the ADHD brain can be a world of too much. It can be overwhelming. And if you want to be able to help your child see the world and function in the world and be happy, sometimes medication is the, is the best thing. Yeah. It can be life-changing if you're one of the yeah. lucky ones. Yeah. Um, I wish I was. I still think <laughs> there's got to be something out there. I just need to go back out on the hunt. So what are the ADHD traits that you feel are responsible for your success? Um, well, I think the empathy is just how I love connecting with people. Uh, and I really, um, because of that, and I, and I can really uh, empathize with people and kind of go into a room and understand people and connect others to each other. I think that's a really uh, big part of it. Also, my hyper-focus has been a, a great um, strength. I think that we can do so much because we're so passionate about what we're interested in. Uh, and, you know, we deep dive into things in a way that uh, neurotypical people uh, would find really um, challenging, I think. And I think that's been a huge part of my success in terms of everything that I've, you know, I hyper focused on the kids. <laughs> and yeah. that, that led me to um, where I am today in lots of ways. So, yeah, I think that those two, and, and, you know, that also leads to that diligence and the perfectionism when it's under control, you know, (laughs) before it goes too far because you really want to do your best when you're passionate about something or care about people. So, yeah, I think those are the the traits that really have helped me be successful in my life and and also part of that empathy is being able to um, really understand myself and once I had that diagnosis and could put the pieces of the puzzle together really really being able to listen to myself and know when it's enough uh, when I've taken on too much and having to step back that's that's been important as well. Do you have an ADHD workaround? So many Tracy. And a lot of them were strategies that I um, built up uh, before I knew. Uh, and with the help of my husband, my biggest, you know, the simplest one is planning uh, the week's meals, you know, and then shopping for that. Because I used to hate cooking so much and I just couldn't do it. I'd come and look at the fridge and I'd be going, I can't even think where to start cook this dinner but when I've planned out the week and I come home and I know okay tonight I'm making this (laughs) and it just makes life so much easier and so much um, less overwhelming. So how did you get though past the 
I've never been able to do that. And the reason I can't do it is because I don't know what I want to eat until I'm hungry. (laughs) I'm a nightmare. My husband would love it. And he's tried since we were married to plan the meals well in advance. I mean, now though, at least what we do is we shop once once a week, maybe twice a week, you know, big shopping. And then we pick from that and decide what we're going to do. But how did you get to the point, unless maybe you just don't care about food, so it's really not a big deal to you? Yeah, well, uh, no, I love food and I love eating really well. You know, like I want to, and so I just, I mean, I picked food that I liked and the kids just had to (laughs) lump it. But no, the, the kids were quite fussy eaters as well. So I had a limited palate to work with. Um, so it was a bit of a challenge to come up with some really good things to eat that everyone would so eat. Do you, and, do you have like 10 meals that you constantly um, yeah, not, that's right. not regurgitate? What's it called? You keep bringing them <laughs> Cycle. Cycle through. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. About, yeah, I have about 10 or more. Yeah. And then, and, and cycle through in a fortnightly cycle kind of thing. And it's so funny because um, my mother can ring and she'll know what I'm having for dinner. <laughs> Well, you know, the beauty of that, though, is that then you know exactly what to shop for when you're shopping, right? So it takes out all the thinking. That's right. It does. And and that's that's how I coped. And and, I mean, the biggest- How did you finally do it, though, Lara? Well, I think what happened was it just became so overwhelming. Part of it was I stepped back from doing too much. I had to take out that really full-on career- um, mm. to be able to breathe. And so then I was able to do that. And I enjoy cooking now, you know, because I've got the time to do it. I'm not exhausted at the end of the day um, having to throw some food together for everybody just for fuel. Now I have mm. the time. You know, I finish school at 3 o'clock and I've got the time to actually do what I need to do and cook those meals. So that was, you know, I'm in a really privileged position where I could step back from the rat race and, and my husband is in a position where he's our primary uh, earner. So yeah. I could step back and make my life more simple so I could cope with things like that. Because I saw with our ADHD and my daughter's dyspraxia that um, nutrition and, and eating well was what we needed to do was part of the picture. You know, all these little bits that filled the picture of, of um, coping better with life, eh? So what you're basically doing is you're building a structure. Yeah, I built a structure and I kept it simple. Uh, mm-hmm. But I had to build in that helping people again, you know, that for it to be meaningful, because otherwise I was sitting here, I felt like there was too much focus on me, I was ruminating about stuff, and it wasn't until I had work again, and was doing something to help people as well, that that, that added to the meaningfulness of my life, that I was truly happy again. So having it as simple but meaningful is was the goal. <laughs> Well, that makes so much sense because when we have too much time, all we're doing is focusing on ourselves versus, especially for our type of brains, you know, we are empathetic. We do want to help people. And so when we're doing that, we're, you know, firing this dopamine. So we feel better and everything else seems to be easier then. That's right. And there was far too much um, time on my own, uh, ruminating and feeling bad about what I hadn't been able to do. And I needed to get back out there doing again to really, you know, be well. So that I feel really privileged that I got the opportunity to to retrain and do this work because I you know I learn as much from the kids uh, every day that 
as they get the support from me, I learn from them. So it's a great solution for me. So Lara, um, where can people find you if they want to know more about you? I've got an Instagram, I guess. Uh, I do post on, it's called uh, The Adventures, The ADD Adventures of Lara and Frida. And uh, So wait, wait, wait. What's, what's the Instagram handle? So The Adventures, but spelled ADD, Ventures of Lara and Frida. And Frida is my dog's name. And I, I guess that's, I, I don't really have a social media present other than presence other than that so if anyone wanted to get in contact with me through that that would be fine and yeah that that would be the place to get a a hold of me wonderful lara thank you so much for spending time with us here today thank you tracy i'd just like to say thank you for what you do a big part of being positive and um, moving forward with my diagnosis has been listening and being inspired by your podcast every week it really has helped frame and identify the the strengths that my ADHD brings and to remind me every week of that. Uh, You do such great work for the women in the community here. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. So thank you. Thank you. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Lara, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews help. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.